You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. We'll we'll jump right into it though because we're on a more of a time crunch than normal for these these Friday episodes. This is more on me because I got to go back to work, David. I know you hustled to uh, to make it work today, but I originally reached out to you. You must have gotten so many messages after you won uh, North American Champs because I messaged you right away and I was like, David, we got to talk. I want to talk about how you make a turnaround between the European Champs and the North American Champs going from like fading to <laughs> to success and then it took you like a week and a half to get back to me because i was just buried in all your fanboys messages and then I, the time I, passed i never even saw it it was like it was it was actually i went to go send you a message about something and then i was like oh crap there it is um so then i found it that way and i was like man because i had been wondering i was like when am i when am i gonna go chat with these guys about i'm sure that we had lots to talk about uh so yeah, I was glad I wasn't forgotten about. That's cool. <laughs> Same story. For like <laughs> nine months, I've been talking to Lisa. This guy sent me a super heartfelt message. Long. Like really, really great message. And I pinned it, I thought, for later to check on. And you know how Instagram, once it's down, you can't. it's impossible to find because you can't search a keyword or anything. And I hadn't noted... Like the screen name. And you just forgot. I For like nine months, I, I bring it up like every other week. Man, this guy, I need to find out who this was. And the other day, Rich Ryan's like, you need to talk to this one guy about this one thing. He had an interesting comment. I think you two should chat. And I went to message him and it was that guy. And you were like, oh, I owe you a note. And that guy was me. <laughs> but so it was one of those like, hey, I want something from you now. But I also have to acknowledge the fact that I didn't. Yeah answer you nine months ago is uncomfortable i it happens to me all the time and i feel really bad about it like i don't think anybody ignores anybody on purpose at least not in our circle that never happens to me i'm organized somebody taught me back in the day with my sales job the the uh the rule that my manager had was touch it once means like you touch it one time and it's done. So that means like you, if you look at it, you're touching it and you're going to get it out of your life so things don't stack up. And I've lived by that ever since. Yeah, that's so smart. I, I would say I want to do that, but I am like – I have terrible executive functioning. I have ADHD and I just lose stuff. I'm also like just doing – I'm just spread – pulled in so many different directions right now. It's just crazy. I have so many projects I'm working on and just – you, you get sometimes you get like an email on your phone and then the next thing you know you've looked at it and then it just is in the ether and you're like oh no no i don't know what you guys are talking about i'm a bad communicator on devices i'm the first to admit that but my one of my biggest issues is i'm a sleep swiper if i check my phone to check the time in the middle of the night there's a good chance and i just swipe my notifications away as i open the phone Many times the next morning, I'll go back through and see like six or seven important notifications that I swiped during the night at like three in the morning. I'm trying to not touch my phone at night because I have to wake up at four. So mm. swiping at three is not a good sign. Is that the, what schedule do you run? I guess I'm curious about that. I get up at four fifty five or five every day, which I think is somewhat reasonable. But you got a lot going on between kiddo and training and the business. Is that your typical four a.m.? Yeah. When do you get to bed? Uh, yeah, for, it depends on the day. Like, um, uh, <clears throat> I try to be in bed before nine 
most days. Um, so like we might not fall asleep till nine thirty. You might fall asleep at eight thirty. It really depends. But um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are my earlier days, and I'm typically awake between four and four twenty on most of those days. And just going like like it's my routine to get out of the house is like if I wake up at four and I set a second alarm for four o five just to be safe. I'm out the door by 4.30, and that means I've walked the dogs, I've made coffee, I've grabbed my breakfast, and I'm eating it in the car on the way to the gym. So um, typically, and then the other days I get to sleep in a little later, but I'm still up by, you know, before 6 on those days. And How's Katie manage this? Is she cool with 8.30 bedtimes? Yeah, she loves it. She loves early bed. She doesn't wake up at 4 voluntarily. Me and Jess, me and Jess are in bed by 8.30 every night. It's great, man. It's honestly, it's it's a really healthy way to live. Like, I get my best stuff done, either workouts or work, at like between four and eight in the morning, anyways. And then, like the second half of my day is usually like my doldrums, BS, like dick around, anyways. So I just I get everything in the morning. So it's better to be going in the morning. And then the only thing that kills me is NBA playoffs is killing me because I'm like trying to watch these games and it's. I'm asleep. I'm just running on fumes right now. East Coast sucks for any sporting event. Terrible. We're the opposite. We start hanging out at 9 because the kids are down, put them to sleep, and then that's our time. So We put the baby to bed at 7, so we get a little bit of time for us. Usually mm-hmm. like we feed her dinner, and I've prepared dinner, and we eat it after we put um, – after we put the the baby down and get a little bit of time. And sometimes that time is like me going back down here to the gym and, and my office gym and lifting or doing something. And then, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's just sitting and watching Netflix or basketball or whatever. But, um, typically like I try to get into, like I wake up early enough that like if I have to coach a five thirty or 6am class, I can do a 30 minute workout before that even starts is my goal to get like the first 30 minutes in for the day. How far is your house from your gym? Um, in the morning at that time I can drive in in like under 20 minutes. So it's pretty quick. I, if I bike in, it's usually about 25 minutes. So pretty, pretty quick. <laughs> I forgot what real cities are like. <laughs> you drive slow or bike fast. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You have to drive slow. I'd be if I if I drove as fast as I felt like through the city to get to work, I would probably have eight speeding camera tickets just on the way in. So there's just no chance. DC is notorious for that. Not me. There's always a guy driving 45 in the 55 down my two lane county highway that I just put the brights on and ride until I can get around them. It's just, you got to count on it out here. There's people, there's always somebody who's not in a hurry out my way. Um, let's get this thing on track, fellas. David, we were going to, we, Brad and I were chatting before you, um, before you hopped on, because we wanted to chat about the turnaround time, like I said, between Euro and North American. And then time has passed. It's been, I don't know, how long has it been? Month and a half, two months? It feels like a long time. It's been like, Two and a half months. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. So then Brack and I are thinking like, well, that's not fresh on our minds, but we do want to dive into a few things with you outside of that first. And then if we get to that, we'll get to that. Is that cool? Okay. And the main thing, the one thing that I don't feel like has been talked about a ton with you in some of your success this year so far is the fact that you came back from 
injury. You were somewhat quiet about it. You weren't running nearly as much as you'd wanted to. And you ended up putting the pieces together pretty well, obviously. Like, things came together. And Bracken's been coming back from injury after injury or surgery lately. He's finally got the swing of things. I have a history of that. Like, we, I wanted to chat that out. Like, how does a dude, because you weren't running for a significant period of time, and your timeline's been pretty quick. Right. So, like, I think starting there is actually the most beneficial for people listening and for us, too, like, to chat that out. Like, what happened to you? What injury was it? Walk us through that for starters. I'll set the scene. So, uh, last year, North American Championships, Chicago, um, I had been informed prior to that race that I was already – uh, guaranteed an entry to world championships. It was a miscommunication on the part of myself and, and Mintra Tilly, who who uh, basically runs High Rocks. And uh, she was referring to, oh, you have a guaranteed age group slot, not a guaranteed elite 15 spot. So um, we run North American championships and I withdrew because of a sled issue where like it would, I could lift it off the ground, but for whatever reason, it would, like it had teeth, it would just bite and like stop abruptly and the back end would lift off the ground and I was like unable to move it for like, it took me like seven minutes to finish what would normally be like a three minute sled. And I was like this, I'm a kilometer behind, like this race is over. Um, and I was like, okay, it's fine. I've got a bid to world championships. I'm good. Um, and then we had the baby in... March, I had suffered like a like an ankle injury, like a really bad sprain with some ligament damage in February, and I didn't run like all February. And then in March, we had the baby, and so I was home from work and just running a ton, flat ground, pavement, trying to get myself together um, to get a qualifier, a qualifying time in. Because at this point, I now found out I've missed the New York race. I find out that I'm. I need a qualifier for world championships. So I'm training like a madman coming off this ankle injury and I'm trying to just get my running speed up. So I was doing almost like a Sebastian Coe style training plan, like a ton of fast, um, like a lot of two a days. I was like somehow running like 60 miles a week and like 70% of it was fast. (laughs) And I was just like, I, I had this crazy trajectory of fitness. Like it just went nuts for like, and I did that for like six or eight weeks. But at the same time, we had the baby. We were we were on an every hour feeding schedule with the baby. So like she was so small, the doctors liked every hour. So every, so every other hour, either Kate or I would wake up and feed the baby in the middle of the night. And so even when you're not getting up, the, the alarm's going off for the other person to get up. And we just weren't sleeping at all. And I'm not blaming the baby, but um, I just wasn't getting the right sleep for recovery. And I ended up with a stress fracture in my shin. And I was like, okay, I get, I wasn't certain. Did you, can I pause you real quick? Just, yes. Sorry. We have a little delay here, but just for timeline's sake. So March, like just over a year ago, March, and then you were really over speed training, running on cement, which makes sense if you're going to save your ankle, right? I'm sure there was logic behind that too. Like, ah, I don't want to run on uneven yeah. terrain. So I'm on yeah, pounding exactly. the pavement, which is pretty typical. And then when did the stress fracture happen? Just timeline wise. So the stress fracture was probably end of March. Um, I, I was, I had an April race in London lined up. It was like my last chance to qualify. Like a lot of guys went and ran the Dallas race and I was like, Oh, I'm going to go run one of those European courses. So I uh, flew across the pond and I, for like the week and a half or 
sorry, two weeks maybe leading up to it, I couldn't run. I knew my shin was bad. So I was just on the bike every day, just in the house, just grinding on the spin bike. And um, I get to that race and I miss qualifying by like a few seconds. So I am devastated and I'm, I'm like, okay, I still can't run. World Championships is another two weeks out. And so I guess World Championships is now in May, sometime in May. And this this had been the end of April. So I hadn't been running for, I don't know, three weeks. I, I ran with pain for a week or two. And then I'd been just on the bike for a few weeks. And then London happens. After London, I still can't run. So I'm biking. And that's my only real, real form of like conditioning work. And uh, I run the Las Vegas High Rocks race. And... I remember warming up that day on the treadmill and I was like, I don't think I can race. Like my shin was so much pain. I was like trying not to puke. And I was like, I need, like I had decided I was going to run age group because I was committed to getting this like sub 60 that I really wanted and kind of proving that I should have been running at the elite 15 race. So I end up running on it. Every step's misery. And yeah, I ran, I cracked 60 for the first time that day and then set myself back big time. Cause now my shin is, demolished and it's not just the running it's like pushing heavy sleds on it and doing all this stuff it's just terrible for it so um i then i don't think i was able to run again from like may until i attempted a couple runs in like july and it still wasn't working and then in beginning of august i finally was able to start running so basically it was like end of march to the end of july i was pretty much not running any of that uh, it was a pretty long time because um, I just every time I came back I'd run like a day or two and all of a sudden there's the pain again and so I was spending 60 to 90 minutes a day on the assault bike or the ski erg and just you know I think that slowed the recovery process a lot just constantly biking and, and pushing it but at the same time it was slowly but surely healing and I was building like this really nice aerobic engine and lactic engine by just doing these workouts. Sometimes it was 25 calorie rounds on the assault bike. Sometimes it was 50. Sometimes it was 100 calories at a time. And just nasty, ugly workouts that aren't fun, but they fit pretty well for high rocks. Like it's a really good training tool if you're training for an event that is just super compromised, heavy legs, strength running. Um, the assault bike, strangely enough, it might be the best training tool for high rocks of, of anything. And so, um, after putting in what, like three or four months of misery like that, all of a sudden, um, I started running again and I debuted with a DecaFit race about a month after I started running and ran, uh, just over 30 minutes. I finished one second behind VJ. I ran like 30.04 or 30.05 and, um, and then I knew like, okay, now my fitness, this is where my baseline fitness is to start. Like, it's going to be a good year. Like I, I'm healthy. I didn't, I didn't have the speed at that time. Like I, you know, like speed takes a little bit of time to, to build back up. But, but I knew that like my engine could handle a pretty good amount at that point. And it was just a matter of getting another month or two of running under my belt. And I was going to be pretty strong. And then High Rocks was about a month after that. High Rocks, New York. And I ran just over 60 minutes there. And, uh, I just kind of was on fumes for the last like round and a half there, but 
I knew like, okay, like if you can get about six and a half, seven rounds of a high rocks race off, off this assault bike fitness, you're good. You're pretty good. This is a good way to go about it. And then from there, the rest of the season was just, you know, Maastricht wasn't great, but then, you know, Noram champ, Stockholm, everything's been kind of clicking right now. I'm doing, I'm not doing, but I'm doing something similar to that, which is try to build your fitness through other means and then pair it to running. And the the dangerous thing I found is that uh, you can't use how workouts feel as your barometer for are they appropriate as you come back. Because when you're building up from being out of shape, your cardiac output, like your, your cardiovascular system is your limiter. It's hard to hurt yourself running intervals because you can only get like four or five intervals in and you're dead. But when mm-hmm. you build up a big engine, you know, with me, it was incline trainer and the rower mm-hmm. and a bit of a salt bike and ski erg. I got done with that and I could handle workouts and I would think I'm okay. And I ended up having an impact injury because I wasn't like I, I, the thing I knew my whole life as my limiter and workouts wasn't to be trusted because the engine wasn't as good as the supporting pieces. So in that comeback for you, what, what was your way of staying honest to your ability to run without trusting the wrong metrics? How did you stay healthy the second time? So the big thing for me was I was like, okay, I think monitoring how much intensity running I'm doing is part of it, but then also just overall running volume down, other volume up. So it was like taking the training that I then had been doing for like four months, a lot of like long grindy workouts with machines, and then a lot of them finally getting to sub running in. So like running intervals instead for those and minimizing my total mileage um, where I'd have like one longer run a week and one more like threshold kind of effort run or one where I'd sprinkle a threshold effort into the middle um, and then a track workout. But in general, like instead of running 50 to 70 miles a week, like I'd done for the previous couple of years, it was more like, all right, I'm going to cap myself at about 30 to 35 miles a week for most of these weeks and just be conservative on the running side and trust that like it's going to come back because I have this big engine now from just the zillions of meters of assault bike work. And uh, I mean, it it really, it it turned out really nicely. But then I think at the same time, you you look at your running fitness and you're like, okay, I, I can't still, even now, like I can't tap into the same running that I was able to tap into previously in terms of like, if I was to run a 10 miler or a all out 5k or any of that, like all of those, I would still have to like specialize and really ramp up my volume. But because high rocks requires kind of a different type of running, I haven't had to do crazy mileage. I just only this past month started ramping up to the 50, 60 mile a week range. So you put your running in as quality first and let the volume build from there. Well, because I had so much volume already, like I was doing a lot of like, like I did a hundred mile bike ride. I'm doing like a lot of like going out and riding for two and a half hours on the bike. And I was doing, uh, and bike commuting to work to like add volume to my running and, or to my just overall endurance work. And, and then, you know, doing workouts that were like 5k row to 5k ski to, you know, 200 calorie assault bike, like, and things like that, where, and doing a lot of compromised running work where you don't have to run as far to really improve that ability to run uh, under duress. And, you know, I just felt like, 
okay, I'm basically taking a good engine and incorporating some running. And now some running is going to be a lot better than no running. And then I just kind of took the conservative approach in terms of like, don't, don't do so much that you get hurt again. Like don't do enough that you can crack a shin again, because it just, you know, we're not 25 anymore. We can't handle, like our bones don't heal the way they used to. Like, I think that would have been an eight week injury for me back in the day. And now it was like 14 or 16 weeks in total, maybe 16 weeks, I think. Mm -hmm. Had you dealt with stress fractures, tibial stress fractures before? Yeah, 2011. Um, I was living in Miami and I was my first rounds of running marathons. And I was in Miami. There's not a lot of good places to run. So I was pounded pavement. I found I had this one street I loved in Coral Gables that was uh, covered in banyan trees like for miles. And you could just you could get some shade. And otherwise, it was just too blazing hot down there for me. And so I was just running. I was just pounding pavement every day down there and trying to get up to the 50 plus miles a week. And I'm, you know, like I'm 190 pounds. Like it's, it's a, it's a big beat down on the, on the shins. So I ended up doing this, something similar, like cracking my shin and then deciding I'm just going to run the race anyways. It's only four weeks from now. And so training through it for four weeks and then racing on it and didn't go well. Mm -hmm. Wasn't a good idea. Don't recommend. I've dealt with, uh, I think I've had four tibial stress fractures, maybe, and a host of other ones throughout my career. Nothing lately, but you know, you'll read like I, you always hear about shin, like I have athletes with shin issues, and I always tell them like Bracken saying, of pay now or pay later," because it's so true. It's like every run you just have to do. Like you're like, I gotta get this one more in, or I'm gonna test it out again. You just reset your timeline every single time to recovery, and you'll read like, "Oh, six weeks for a stress fracture online." Yeah, right. Six weeks for a tibial stress fracture. And then people also yeah. think that they're just miraculously going to go right back to the volume they left off at. And what they don't realize is it's eight <laughs> weeks minimum, most likely 10 or 12. And then when you come back to running, you might run twice your And that's first if you week. do nothing. Correct. So point being is like, it's actually a very cloudy, like, oh, it's just a little stress fracture. Like, I'll be back in six weeks. That's what the internet says. Yeah, you'll be back to run walking twice a week for 10 minutes total for your first few weeks back. Like you don't really understand what you're getting yourself into. So coming back from that is, is a longer process than people think. People are like, oh, I started running again 11 weeks later. And they're probably like, oh yeah, David was right back up to full volume. No, David ran two miles, his, maybe a mile his first run. It was not. Right. It's just like, you got to outline how slow that process mm-hmm. is. My, my process was, I think it was every third day or something in the beginning. And it was like the first day I got to do one minute on one minute walk. And then I did, I got to do like 10 rounds of that or something. So I got like a total of 10 minutes of running in. And then the next time I got to run, they let me do two minutes of work and one minute off, but I only got to do like six rounds of it. So I got like 12 minutes of running in on my next run. Like it was really slow. And that was after failing to come back multiple times where like I went on the track and just ran like a mile and I was like, or two miles or, and it was like, nope. Or or the next morning I woke up and I was like, oh no, what have I done? And then it was another, and then another three weeks off. I think one of the worst things for athletes are the projected recovery times that doctors will give you. And I, I struggle with that with my knee. It was supposed to be three to six weeks return to sport. And at week 10, I finally said, screw it. I'm going to try actually running outdoors. And by week 12, I was like, I'm taking another month off. 
Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be three to six weeks back to sport. I was trying to jog. And then you start looking up all these, you know, every link you can find. You go down the rabbit hole to where did they get their information? And it ends up being they're doing a study of 20 to 24-year-old professional athletes, what their return to sport was. Like, well, they were going to intensive PT and rehab practices that I don't have access to three to four times a day. Like, yeah, and they're 20. And their bodies, yeah, their bodies are just, they're able to recover. And that's the thing, like, in general, like, when we were 25 years old, I felt like, you know, I could run through a wall. Like, it just didn't matter. And if I got hurt, it was like, well, I'll be fine in, like, you know, a few weeks. And now, that's the one thing is, like, even just recovering from really hard workouts, it has, it takes, like, so much, like, meticulous care. Like, my warm-ups have to be so crazy or I just, like, my back locks up or, like, I just, my body in general, just, I'm just old. Like, it's not the same. I just wish I had found High Rocks 10 years ago. Hmm. How old are you as a refresher, David? I forget. You're a couple years younger than me. I am 36. I'm almost 37. 36. Okay. Not that old. Not that old. I... Not that old, man. Oh, I know. I, I was just talking to someone today about this thing. Like, you can't tell somebody older than you that you're old. But um, at the same time, like, it's not like it was. Like, mm-hmm. every year, I think you feel your age a little more. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you can't stay competitive. It's just, like, it's it requires more discipline and better strategy and better recovery. I've said this on the podcast a number of times, but I fully believe, like, as endurance athletes, especially, like, half-hour-plus athletes – which is DECA, High Rocks, or any traditional OCR, a lot of road racing, like you can possibly run your best in your young 40s to even mid 40s. I really believe that. But what ends up taking people out is they don't recover as quick as they used to and they overtrain and get injured. And then they're never able to regain the consistency that they had when they were young and bulletproof. And it's really their training has been forced to pivot because they haven't figured out the right equation for themselves. They either end up detrained or injured, and then you're never going to get it back. At some point, you're never going to be able to regain it if you're in an injury cycle and aging. But I really think that is the ticket. Like You can perform very well as long as you figure it out for you and stay healthy. I, I mean, I'm yet to find out. I'll be 40 in less than a month, but in like three weeks. But um, I right now, the way I feel, it's like, sure, I got to do one less quality workout every 10 days. So be it. I can still build really good fitness that way. And I'm sure you think the same thing. Yeah, but... but- Kirk, you're a monster right now. (laughs) Well, you get my point, though. Yeah, absolutely. I was going back through all my old training logs during my most recent, like, reassess what am I going to do this year with my training. So I went back through, and I tried to just cement, and I made columns, things that work for me, things that I dislike but really generate fitness, things I really like but don't seem to move the need. Just trying to find, like, what are the common truths And so I went back to the first time I tried writing my own training post-collegiately. And then, you know, David, when we were racing each other back in 2012, 2013, 13, 14, more like that. But what I was doing then, the thing that just kept jumping out is my training log notes talked about fatigue. That was my indicator of everything. Third quality workout this week, I was pretty fatigued in my warm-up. Mm-hmm. And now it's like second quality workout this week. Ankles and knees feel like there could be something wrong, but I think I just need to get moving. Like at, you can do all the same things you used to do, but they cost differently now. Oh, like those yeah. workouts, it used to be, I'm too tired to do this workout now at this point in the week. And now it's, 
If I didn't know better, I'd swear that I had ankle tendonitis and a torn meniscus right now this week because everything's <laughs> inflamed and it hurts. But tomorrow I'll be fine. Like fatigue's no longer the like the the currency. Now it's it's actually like joints and things creaking and aching. The price we pay, and it's funny because like if you see me at four o'clock in the morning versus five o'clock in the morning, I'm a very different person. Four o'clock in the morning, it's like getting out of bed and it's like, oh, and then you, I like limp down the stairs. I literally do like one step and then the next foot matches because like, you feel like a little plantar fasciitis in that left foot. And then you like, you, uh, I get, I get to the gym and I've got to like, I've got to roll out the back and get it cracked and do my Jefferson curls and do my 90 nineties, like just to like, be able to like walk normally and then everything starts to kind of go you get your you get your squat mobility and all that stuff going and then like gradually within an hour of wake up I'm like myself again but it's like I read about I, I remember reading about Jerome Bettis the bus and you know like the hardest runner like in like NFL history and the year after he retired he talked about how he needs an hour just to get out of bed in the morning like he was playing football that way and it's the price we pay like that. It's like the secret price. Like nobody knows Kirk, like how miserable your first hour of your day is, but you, but, but I know mine, mine sucks. You know, the best I've felt in the last year, this is not a lie in life. I took a full week off of purposeful training last week, two weeks ago. And by Thursday or Friday, I'm like, this is the best I felt in a year. And I was doing nothing of purpose. I was like, I woke up and I was like, Oh, I didn't crash in the afternoon after lunch. I was like, I'm not even tired tonight to go to bed. I'm like, I feel like I am walking on air. And I'm like, well, no shit. I've been beating my body down for years. Like, I just gave it a break. And suddenly I'm like, awake. I don't hurt. And I'm like, this is what it used to feel like, like even while I was training. It's interesting. I made a heavy note of that. I was like, I had endless energy. I was Superman towards the end of my week off. Those are, those are things you're right. We don't talk about. That's the best I felt in a year. Well, so, okay. So you remind me of something, which is that like, Two weeks out from North American Championships, for High Rocks North American Championships, um, I caught the flu. And the first day was, like, really bad. Like, um, I knew I was really sick. I woke up. I had thrown up during the night. And I woke up and it was bad. But I had to take the baby to daycare in the morning. So I, like, willpowered myself. I could barely stand. And I willpowered myself to get the baby ready and get her in the car seat and drove her to daycare. And then I was in the parking lot at daycare, like trying to just summon the strength to just drive back to my house. And then on the way home, um, like I made it within like a block of my house before I shit my pants. And then, uh, just casually slipped that in there. Yeah. I was like this close. I almost made it. I had like a real good, like 25 year run going of not (laughs) shit my pants. And then, Yeah. (laughs) That's almost superhuman. Twenty five years with no slip ups. It was it was a good run, and Way then go, uh, yeah, almost. And then um, from there, once I got back in the house and showered up, I could not leave the couch for the rest of that day. And um, the day after that, my stomach was still very upset, but like I was able to get up a little bit. And over the course of the week, I gradually was able to move a little more. I think the following day, like I did some really lightweight squat and like got on a spin bike for a little, but I couldn't really do anything. So it was like, it forced me to take like basically five days off running. And I was like, oh man, this is terrible. And now we're talking about like the Friday 
I guess the Saturday before the race was like my first day back running. So a week in advance. And then, you know, you're tapering that week. And then all of a sudden I ran, I was, it was, I was magic out there that day. And it's just so interesting that like this forced break that the flu made me take ended up making me stronger. Because the fitness was already there. It was just a matter of like, can I be rested enough to, to do something with it? That's very true. And something you both said just made me think and why this sport's kind of cool. The best I have physically felt in the last decade has been every High Rocks build I've done. Like everything else is too specific and too like one-dimensional. Hybrid racing as dumb as it seems to the pure runner is the only thing that's kept me holistically healthy and happy, completely healthy and happy. Even when I was training for my second Hyrox that I came into with a torn meniscus, I felt really good other than the things that required the meniscus to work. Everything else, it's the best my lower back's ever been. It's the best that my hips and hamstrings have been. It's the best my upper back and neck have been like the forced ability not even ability the forcing you to do other modalities and strengthen every inch of your body has made it the best ever i'm not my fastest but when i'm at my fastest i also feel my most fragile yeah i'm definitely not fast right now that's like the, the, the other funny thing about it is like if you were like drop like an all-out 5k right now it would be brutal it would not be great but i could run 85 to 90 percent of that for a while um, and like, so I think you're right. You're onto something where you hybrid training kind of forces you to reduce your mileage because it's not possible to do like all the rowing and machine work on top of high volume running on top of all these lifts and everything that you need to do. So it does force you to strike a balance and it can help you kind of stay out of your own way. We should talk about the uh, mixed modality stuff. I had a an interesting thing of note with myself. This was like a week or two ago. As I, or as I was taking my down week, I started scrolling through my own Strava, like the history trends. I know you guys all use it where it shows like your fitness score, right? Like if you're working harder, your fitness score goes up. And if you're resting, you know, <laughs> which is so, sort of crazy because I don't agree with the way that works. But I looked back and I don't either. I was talking about this mm -hmm. too. But I looked back, and when I was injured, I took five months off in 2020 for a two-foot feet stress fractures. I kind of did what you did. I biked like heck through it, and I prolonged my recovery. But the point being is my highest Strava score by 30 points consistently was when I was injured because I was pounding everything for volume. I was out on the bike doing my first century. I was hitting assault bike, hate your life intervals. And now, according to Strava, my output is notably lower than it was when I was injured. Like on paper, it would say, Kirk, you have the best fitness when you weren't able to run. And not saying that there's anything secret to that. And of course, it's not impact, right? So you can get away with a little more quality and the recovery cycle is shorter. But did you notice anything like that? Like I was actually doing more work while injured. And of course, you got to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Obviously, that's why I did it. But um what, what's your note with that? Like I, I had great fitness. I couldn't translate it to running immediately, but like I was more fit on paper. Did you experience that? Well, f first of all, Strava, I don't log like a lot of the stuff I do in Strava. So like I log mostly my running and if I'm doing like an outdoor bike, I log it. And so anytime I'm doing a ton of that, Strava's like, man, you are so fit. Yeah. <laughs> it like 
makes it today you went up three points uh-huh. and like it's just it's like yesterday you went up two like it's every day it's like look how much fitter you're getting but meanwhile half my workouts are like in the gym like doing intervals on the skier or the bike or or mixing you know weights with one of those machines or whatever and um, I'm not logging that. Like maybe I type it into Strava, but Strava doesn't have a sense of how hard my body worked. So it doesn't add it to the fitness score. So I look at the fitness score and I kind of giggle because I'm like, this thing thinks I'm like a 78 or whatever it is when like I've been in the over 100. And it's more, their formula is based more on like consistency of output than it is based on actual fitness. Like it's not going, oh, you did this at this speed and this was your heart rate, therefore, like your this is how fit you are, which would be like the logical way for them to calculate your fitness. You know, you were this body weight, this was your heart rate, this is how fast you went. That's the kind of power output you have. But I think all of these things kind of calculate it wrong. Like like your Garmin's VO2 max calculations are like completely insane. I have guys I train with who are slower than me, lighter than me, and yet their VO2 max is listed like eight points higher than mine. Like there's there's no rhyme or reason to it. Yeah. Yeah, those metrics aren't ideal. No, yeah, it was just more like um when I'm when I'm injured, obviously I spend more time and I always had my heart rate monitor on for all cross training cardio while I was injured and I always wear it for any aerobic output now. And I was looking back, I was like, well, God, I was running a hundred mile weeks in quotes as far as my effort goes because I was doing four hour bike rides and all of that. And I think what I'm getting at with that is, yeah, it's inaccurate, of course, but, and then you like take a couple days off and it tells you you're like detraining and you're losing fitness and whatever, which is such bullshit. But (laughs) point being is like, you can use it as a, you can use it as a really good opportunity. Like a lot of people cry themselves a river, throw in the towel, like poor me. Like the one thing you don't do is that. In fact, you double down on the time spent and you can come out the other side and run a North American championship race within months of returning to running. And I think that's like the message I just want to get out there is like, you can do as much or more when you're not able to put your running shoes on. You can do so much. And, and it was, it was hard. I think on two levels, one was like the actually doing the workouts. Like you do have to really think about like, what is my motivating factor in this? Like, and for me all year, I told Kate at the beginning of the year, like, I want to be North American. Cha- I have two goals. I want to win North American championships. I want to win world championships. Like I want to be a world champion. And you know, I'm much in the same way, like Dylan Scott said, like, I don't know what, once I have this baby, like if I'll be able to keep doing this or not. Like I'm, I had one shot basically like, but you know, that was how I felt it was like my baby is going to require such a, a huge amount of time and, and effort. But in the beginning, especially my wife was like, just please leave me alone. Be out, be out of the house. So I was getting some time to train and, um, I wanted to kind of take this shot at it. And so every day it was like, I came into my workouts with like a tremendous amount of like thoughtfulness and purpose. How can I get better? Like really like, you know, the concept of like finding your why and, and like really tapping into your motivators, like, can you be internally intrinsically motivated and not need outside motivation. Like for me, it was just like the one singular goal was my focus. And so I was willing to put in these kind of hours on the rower and on the bike and, and in the skier and this all bike all in the same day, I was doing these monster workouts and I was, you know, I could, I couldn't do a lot of things. I had a shoulder injury as well. So I couldn't do 
uh, a lot of pressing movements. Um, I was having a lot of trouble with um, maintaining my strength going into like the the High Rocks race in New York. But um, now that now that I'm kind of healthy there, it's been like actually fun. Like it's like every time it's like something else becomes healthy, you're like I can add all this new stuff to my training and make it exciting and make it fun and. So then the training becomes a little less of a drag. And then you start to kind of hit its routine now. Like I've got a routine. I've got a really good regimen. And every like six weeks or so, I'm going to make some some change to it so it's fresh and so that I keep like progressing. But, um, you know, like being able to add the running back in was like all of a sudden I was like it was strange. When I got back to being able to run, you know, you miss it so much and you know you need it. And when you're at big and running – and you're running all the time. Running is almost like the easy workout. Like it's like the workout that like you're like, oh, you know, like I'll just go for like a 10 mile run. Like I and you just kind of almost get in that habit of like, you know, like it's it's kind of easy to just like sneak in a run. And that's my workout for this morning or today. I was the opposite where I had done so much assault bike and rowing and ski erging that I was like wanting to do that instead of running in the beginning because it had become so ingrained in me. And it took like a while with my running to like start to feel like, okay, this is comfortable. Like this is, this is like one of the things that I really want to mix into my routine again. It's, that was strange. That's the first time it's ever happened to me when I've been off coming off a layoff. So I, I hated the machine work until a point And then all of a sudden I fell in love with it much in the same way as I tell people you hate like a lot of people hate running but if you do it enough that you become decent at it all of a sudden one day it clicks and you kind of fall in love with it way back at the beginning the first i mean when we for all first started prepping for the first high rocks everyone's like i simmed high rocks i broke the world record i'm gonna break the world record in the first <laughs> yeah, race did that. and we're all wrong because none of us knew how to actually train for it because we hadn't felt a high rocks we thought we had and then you went on this this training block like no one else I'd ever seen where you did a full high rock sim at varying intensities for like 13 straight weeks or something wild like that. I One, I assume that's not what you're doing now. And two, if you had to do it again, would you change it? Or did that lay such a ingrained like biomechanical I don't know if you know if efficiency is the right word, but it's not weird or scary or frightening to you anymore to move from piece to piece in an incredibly compromised manner. That was it all worth doing that? If you had to do it again, is that how you would start this or would you not? I'd probably, I'd probably trim a couple of them out, but I actually, I think it really worked. Like I was getting faster each one and I was learning as I was going and it taught me a great deal about how to pace them and if you had a, you know, a day that like a, something punched you in the gut for some reason, it kind of trained me to overcome it. And I, I, in the beginning of my high rocks, like career, so to speak, um, I was able to kind of rely on this fact that I was like, oh, I've been here like a thousand times. Like I felt this a thousand times. And I do think that it was effective. I don't know if it was like the most effective, like like I tend to find like the workouts that are getting me really good fitness movement results are like you're setting up repeats where like you're you're doing running repeats in inter- running intervals with you know like two fitness stations in between them and you're alternating them or something like that like there you're getting like a little bit more specificity into your training but there is something too like 
being able to hype yourself up for a full high rock sim like at, at the drop of a hat and know like i mean yeah they're still scary but like I'm not scared of running a high rocks. If you asked, if you like knocked on my door right now and you were like, we got to go do a sim, I'd be like, okay. Mm-hmm. How are you balancing that now? Obviously it's a fully compromised event. You get one and a half, two clean runs coming off the skier. Got this point to the field is kind of clean. And then it's not. And it's also like, you don't have to be good at running an AK. You have to be good at running eight by thousand, but six of them are fully compromised. So what does your training look like? I, you don't have to give away the, the, the secrets, but compared to even just pre- preparing for a similarly uh, long OCR race or road race. Well, I mean, anybody who's really curious can um, check out my training plan that I've got for Makita Peak Performance. But I will tell you... Is it your that, training? Uh, it's like actually a lot of it's my training. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's the thing is like... I wanted to put out something that that people could go, okay, like you want to actually train like me? Here's what it takes. And it's like a two hour a day thing. I mean, it's pretty serious. It's two workouts almost every day, um, which is what I'm doing. And so the big thing is um, I'm training compromised running twice a week. And then I either have a long run or a threshold effort in addition to that and track workouts. And sometimes the compromise running is part of the track workout and sometimes it's not. Um, and then there's a lot, there's usually a grind workout that doesn't have running in it as well. That that might be like 60 minutes of like assault bike and sled and something else. Um, and you're, you're kind of working at that high rocks heart rate while also incorporate for like, for like high rocks periods of time, three to four minutes, three to five minutes with, intense strength elements in between that are extended periods of time where you are kind of demolishing yourself and um, learning to work in that work rate. And then at the same time, I'm also doing a lot of stuff that's the opposite of that, where it's really high intensity for short bursts. And I've, I've been kind of adding a lot of that as well with the goal of being used to, to feeling a very different form of suffering um, and, and kind of forcing adaptation that way. So and then there's the lifts, right? There's there's two different ways that I'm there's three different ways that I'm lifting. One is they incorporate it into grind workouts. One is I did a lot of German volume training and like just getting a ton of reps and not being completely demolished by it afterward, but getting a lot of volume in um, for strength. And then the last is just getting in a lot of of heavier squatting and lunging and things like that to, to really build that strength. I'm not deadlifting really much at all and some dumbbell stuff, but for my back, I'm trying to preserve it by minimizing the work there, but a lot of push up, pull up till failure, a lot of really high rep stuff there. Um, and then a lot of the like skill specific elements. So tons of burpee broad jumps and tons of lunges and tons of wall balls and, you start to think about it. You're like, God, this is a lot of volume. Like it is. A, I mean, it's <laughs> so many skills necessary. It's probably 15 hours a week of, of work plus physical therapy every week, plus some mobility, plus whatever other recovery stuff mm-hmm. you're doing. Like it's a ton. I have a question for both of you. This is something I've been pondering myself for a while. Not totally sure where I stand. I have, I'm further along than I was, but 
For a long, long time, one of the trendy answers is if a runner could only do one thing, what they sh- what should they be doing? And the answer oftentimes is deadlift. And then I heard uh, Stacy Hosick and Ian talk about running is essentially one just test of deadlift after deadlift after deadlift. Deadlift is the most specific to running lift. And other people talk about it's just the most important for driving the most muscle fibers to really drive at one time and you can move the most weight with it so it's the best bang for your buck and a lot of those make sense some of them don't to me but my question to both of you is i'm kind of getting to the point where i feel like every runner i know who's hurt themselves lifting the most common lift they hurt themselves doing was deadlift of all the lifts out there that exacerbate an existing injury, the one that people say they have to avoid the most is I'm not deadlifting right now to avoid blank. And running to me is not at all deadlifting. So is deadlifting the most important or the most non-important lift for most runners out there? And if it is the most non-important, is there a better way that you can be doing what deadlift is supposed to do for you in a way that doesn't load up the risk. I know that's a big, long, bloated question, but there's two strength-based runners here, so I'm going to take the opportunity. To me, um, I don't think deadlifts are really that important, but I also am a guy that, like, I didn't touch a barbell for a decade, and then uh, in OCR Stars last year, I deadlifted almost 500 pounds. Like, I have that strength in me, I think, from doing other things. I So, like, to me, it's like, how much stronger do I need to be at that movement than that? And the, to me, the risk-reward just isn't there. Like, there, it's just way more risk than is necessary for me because if I deadlift, the next day either my low back is kind of tight and my run is suffers or my hamstrings are kind of tight, even if I didn't hurt myself. Like, I just find that it kind of beats me down. Um, unlike, you know, squatting and lunging where I can be good the next day. I also think that lunging might be the most relevant to running mm-hmm. in terms of like you're strengthening your glutes, you're strengthening your quads, you're building like lactic acid is like building up in your legs. If you're doing high volume lunging and it is, it, it feels, it deadens the legs in a way that's similar to like really hard running. And, um, I just think that it's a better movement. And also I've never injured myself doing lunges. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting, you can argue both sides very easily because let's just say if anybody listening is like running or walking at the moment, if you place your hands on your lower back, like your erector spinae, as you're even walking, you're going to feel such a heavy contraction out of each erector when your opposite foot hits the ground. It's astounding how hard you're, erectors contract even when you walk do it once feel it so to say that your erectors aren't involved in running is a is a complete lie like it is very important to work those at the same time running makes you inherently one tight two when you realize how much your erectors are being used while you run then you're talking about compounding fatigue when you add in deadlifts on top of that. And now you're using a compromised system that's already trying to recover from running. You don't realize the rear chain engagement when you run. Your quads burn first, right? Maybe your hip flexors go or your hips in specifically. But I just chat, just feel your lower back when you walk, let alone run, and you'll know the pounding it's taking. And so what I think happens is that it's, it's the death by a thousand deadlifts and a thousand strides is that it just 
amounts to too much inflammation and then it goes because our rear chain is heavily involved especially the lower half of the back um, way more than you realize so i think it's i think in one sense it's a fine line it can be beneficial because we need that to be strong and ready but at the same time with the volume that most of us put in adding deadlift is the straw that breaks the camel's back for a lot of people like literally does that make sense does yeah so what would you too pro and we all program for people Mm -hmm. i got deadlifts on most of my athletes plans yeah and i use it as well but if you were told deadlifts are no longer allowable what would you replace it with what one or two things would you replace it with that would accomplish all the intended purposes of deadlift without the need to do it with perfect form every time which might just be the issue with deadlifts It's one of the only lifts you can't get away with bad form long-term. Almost anything else, you can grunt through it with bad form without a huge risk to hurting yourself. Are you doing research, David? I actually just lost your screen. I'm trying to just get it back. (laughs) I can't see you guys. Um, But in terms of – you want to take it, Sure, I'll take it for a sec while you do what you're doing. Um, Well, well, the easy answer is if it's important to you or you do feel like your rear chain needs some work, like – for example, runners who have a big forward lean, you good? You good now? Um, like working on staying more upright would be like the runners whose pelvis, you know, they get like a little ducky, like their ass sticks out and then they sort of get internal, like they can't keep themselves upright. Like you might want to keep a form of deadlift in there, but just splitting the pelvis. I know Alec Blennis made a recent post that said he, he disagrees with what I'm about to say, but like splitting the pelvis, you can go into a single leg deadlift, even do a traditional like barbell deadlift type motion. If you split the pelvis, you're not going to stack the spine. And like, for example, like you could get away with it. You could do a combination of like a Bulgarian split squat with a good morning on the bottom or top, for example, and your split pelvis should reduce risk. Also at the bottom of a Bulgarian split squat, you're really engaging where that hammy meets the glute. So you are getting some rear chain work too. So like I would probably go to one of those two, um, like a deep Bulgarian split squat, not none of that shallow crap. And then uh, you could even add like a little bit of like a, a flexion or like a good morning to it. But I'm a big fan of the split pelvis. Anytime you split your split your pelvis, I, I feel so much better. Like David says, he can lunge and be fine the next day for running. It, it doesn't doesn't affect that like hip girdle the backside of the hip girdle nearly as much unless i went extremely heavy and then i'm jacked up that was that's inevitable and uh i would say like there's a lot that you could do for your lower back that isn't even like super heavy like i mean obviously kettlebell swings i think are really good for just kind of building that entire area and power without demolishing my back at least if your form is good on them if your form is bad on them they're terrible for you um so that's, you know, really using your hips and exploding, driving your feet through the floor and and being snappy and not using your arms to lift them at all, which, you know, I find most people are throwing some arm into it, even if they don't realize it. And um, on top of that, like, you know, even basic things like swimmers and supermans and are really good for your, your low back. Um, I do a lot of, of back mobility stuff because my back is like my problem area. That's the thing that, that has been my issue over the years. And um, when I can keep it loose, a lot of that's because of like I do – I have to spend a lot of time doing hip mobility. And, you know, you have to do your 90-90s and you have to do your activations on, on all your different parts like, like uh, pelvic tilts, deep breathing and all this different stuff that – is really required to get everything firing the way it should be firing. And then um, if you want to strengthen your hamstrings very specifically, 
there's a lot of movements that you can do that are more of a hamstring curl that will, I promise you, leave you way more sore than any deadlift will. Bracken, I'll give you my answer, and it's Bulgarian split squats. Make sure you're getting nice and deep and breaking parallel combined with a single leg Romanian deadlift dumbbell. I don't care. You can play with the the knee angle. I think those two would cover your bases with minimal compromise. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on it? More and more, I think that walking lunges and RDLs are just maybe the two greatest things that you can do. Mm. Like you said, more difficult to hurt yourself unless you overload without any ability to stabilize yourself. If people who go to single leg deadlifts or RDLs and they overload, you're in trouble. I think the easiest way to fix that is you start with things you can hold in your hand. If most people, if they're too weak to do heavy RDLs, they're also too weak to grip massive dumbbells or pinch plates in their hand. Like maybe start with pinch plate. And if you can't pinch it, you can't RDL it. But I I agree with you. And I'm not against deadlifts. It's just that the more body of work I see out there, just of athletes I know, talk to or work with, the more they just keep rising to the top of things that are like, if you had that one moment, like, oh, oh, it was probably a deadlift. It wasn't a hill rep. It wasn't a 400 meter interval. It wasn't bench press. It wasn't squat. If you hurt yourself squatting, it was... Not like in a, oh, there it is. Like it was, you get done with a set. You're like, oh man, that was one set too many. Deadlift's the one lift that most people do, unless they're snatching or cleaning or, which most runners aren't doing that. Just, you have that one moment where it can just go. Yeah. You do want a deadlift though. Like I would say like you can, but I would advise like, like slightly lighter weight, higher volume. And I would advise like a lot of people, if you have a sensitive back, like try the trap bar. Trap bar is amazing. Trap bar helps you sit in those hips a lot more. takes a good strain off. I have athletes who I have deadlifting twice a week right now, and they can handle it like a boss, and they're popping. It's like it's like some people can just handle it, and some people's lower backs just can't. Mm-hmm. I find us, uh, David, us top-heavy runners, we get just a little forward lean. We use that, that gravity to our advantage. Like We also are the guys that have those damn lower backs. I don't know what it is. It might have to do with our structure or our natural tendencies, but there's a theme there, and the sleight-of-frame guys – can like deadlift like maniacs which is seems contradictory but like i've noticed that theme think about the physics of it right if you have all this weight up top then your erector spinae and your quadratus laborum they're all firing to like stabilize this big thing but if you're a twig up top it's like what real stress is this putting on your main core it's not yeah you guys should lose weight yeah, I'm just kidding. Trying, man. I love food. The problem is that, that is love- not a phrase we will we will announce on this podcast. <laughs> you know, for me personally, I I have been trying to lose a little bit. Like I, you know, like you are a little swifter if when you're a big runner, you're a little swifter if you can drop a few. But like the average person, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I agree. Bracken, we should um. We should touch on the other part of this conversation. Is the piece we were Bracken and I were curious about with you is one like your fitness piece came around. Some and obviously resting maybe helped in hindsight. Um, I wouldn't recommend the flu before a race, obviously. Like, don't purposefully give yourself food poisoning or the flu. But point being is also (laughs) the other component of going over there and competing is the whole uh, the whole acclimating, jet lag, figuring out the overseas thing. You've done it a few times. Um, What what's involved with that for you to go? 
like how can you guarantee you might show up feeling like yourself on race day with what is it going to be a six hour difference from the east coast five hour six hour, i don't know what it is five what's the plan there five, i think uh, i don't know that there is like a like an ideal way to do it aside from getting there like a week early i'm gonna get there i'm flying out monday night getting in tuesday morning and the race is oh, friday night so i'm getting Perfect. enough like i'm only flying five hours mm-hmm. so i'm really having like four days to adjust to like five hours so i think it'll be fine um i don't think like time zones were my problem in maastricht it was really just my back was my back just i, I pushed i pushed too hard on the first couple runs the ski and the sled and it's like Oh, what happens when you overdo the first two full rounds of a high rocks? Usually not good things. Um, and so mm-hmm. um, for me, like that, I think that race in Maastricht was much more about strategy and execution than it was about being fatigued or being or having issues from like jet lag. But I do think sitting on a plane for seven hours is or eight hours is probably my biggest issue and that is like sitting in general i think is my enemy like i find like just sitting right now talking to you guys like my back is like just tightening up and you know seat like you know i talk about like like movement is life like you should be like up and on your feet like that's how you're gonna feel good and you know sitting is is really the enemy like you're what's happening like you're 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 so ass and you're hip flexors are like compressing in this position and your your uh hamstrings are shortening and everything is like everything is not great in that seated position and so like on an airplane for eight hours i just find i'm crushed after that so so like looking at this race like part of my plan is get in early get a lot of rest like sleep as much as possible when i'm there um, try and exercise as much normally as I can, but obviously like the intensity should be there, but the volume has to be, you know, down 50% or, you know, something in that realm and, you know, spending the time doing the mobility every day, like the things that are kind of tedious and boring, but spend an hour in the hotel room or in the hotel gym, just, doing all your little hip stretches and your hip activations and your Copenhagen planks and your your dumb little things that your physical therapist gives you that you think are useless but actually are just getting all the right muscles to fire in all the right ways so that you're not just doing that on race day but you're kind of getting all that going ahead of time because this stuff really matters to you like if you this is like if you actually care about your results you have to do these little things and it's the same it's like the same ideas like when people are like oh like X amount of dollars for a training plan. And you're like, well, like if you give a damn, you're going to spend the money. Like, otherwise you can just flounder in your own useless ways for as long as you want, but you're not going to go and you can spin your wheels as long as you want. But like, you're going to spend thousands of dollars to go to this race, to stay in hotels, to do this, to do that. Might as well do it all right. I just had the conversation yesterday on an athlete call. Someone said, what are you going to do the next time you race internationally? Because I will a few times this year. And after my last few interactions, I've just decided I'm getting body work done. I'm going like, it's not worth it. Even this last time going to Sweden, I ended up not doing high rocks over there, but I was considering doing doubles while I was there since I was already in Stockholm and day one, I'm like, I'm not going to run because I know that's my track record is the day I fly. I can't run. I can do non-impact cardio. I can lift. I can do mobility. I cannot run. 
And I'm on the playground playing with the kids at this local little place. And right away, my lower back's like, ugh. I spent the next three days stretching and doing mobility. It's like, you know, forget it. If I'm spending, like you said, thousands to travel and put myself up and get there, I'm going to spend an extra 80 bucks and see a Cairo when I land. Cairo. I'm going to make sure that those things can't pop up because if you do care, what's 50 to 80 bucks? I was actually planning on getting a massage, like a real good sports massage, deep tissue. You ever had the ones where they like go into your pelvis and they almost like unbutton you in your pelvis? Like, mm-hmm. like something like that. Um, yeah, it's not great. Uh, but, you know, there's more painful things. Like, I'd rather do that than get dry needles in a lot of areas. So, um, especially if it's the hip flexors. <laughs> so, um, have you ever had your, your hip flexors dry needled before? No. Don't do it. Needle The needle bends. Let's put it that way. So, um, yeah, I think I think body work is definitely on my list of things to do. And, and um it's it's interesting because some people are going earlier than I am, but like you have to strike that balance too. It's like how much time are you going to take off work? How much time are you going to take away from your family? Um, you know, like I'm getting out there Tuesday morning, and my wife is actually going to fly out there, but she's not getting in till Friday morning. And so, um, it's it was hard to justify leaving earlier than that, but I do think if you can, the more time the better. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you didn't say um you didn't say like oh, it's my magic workout when I get to land I got to hit my magic interval session or this it's just like all the little stuff that's <laughs> what I'm hearing. It's like the TLC portion like get to the start line feeling good and that doesn't mean like got to hit my last sharpening thing exactly like I would if I'm back home. It's more like let's get us to homeostasis. That's what I'm hearing anyways. Of course you're working hard a, a little bit in there but so, like, if I'm landing Tuesday, my usual routine is Wednesday morning, I do a track workout. Um, so, I'll probably do, like, a light one. I'll find a track and do, like, a light track workout on Wednesday. But it's, it's 24 hours later. Like, I think, I, I, unlike you guys, I do like to run when I land, but it's, like, three miles super slow. Like, in those runs where you start out and you're running, like, 11-minute miles, and then, like, by the end of it, you're like, ooh, like, I'm running, like, 830s. Like, mm. Like, just nothing stressful. It's just, like, I like to get the blood pumping. Um, but I also... I do, too. But what I found is I get pretty big lower extremity swelling. And what that leads to is I take more damage than I should when I hit the ground. And I end up cramping in those races. And I'm not a cramper. And so I, it's, a, it's a sample size of me. I can't do that. Have you, uh, have you ever used Firefly Recovery? Mark gave me two, I think, and I've used, I, you know, the portable units. I used them back in the day, but I, I don't, I haven't used them on a flight. Yeah. I use them when I fly. I usually wear them. I run them for like four hours during the flight and then I'll use them again when I land. And it's crazy because it's just stimulating the nerve down like, uh, was the peroneal nerve down by the anterior tibialis and, um, you are, it's just like your leg is like your foot is like twitching the whole flight, but it's pumping blood through your lower leg and up through. And it really does help in flight. Like they originally created it for people like returning from Achilles surgery. Um, so like Galen Rupp was like a big user of it in the beginning when he was recovering and it, it really does work for just blood flow through there, pumping the blood out. And so um, I typically find my legs are doing pretty well at the end of a flight. I mean, like, yeah, if you flew to Abu Dhabi, I think you're going to be banged up regardless. That's just a really long journey. And our trip to Stockholm was 
pretty rough because we didn't have direct, so we had to fly to Frankfurt. And then, like, you land at Frankfurt at, like, you know, 7.30 in the morning, and then you lay over in Frankfurt until noon, and then, which is just terrible. And then, like, the long layover kills you. And then you fly to Stockholm, and by the time you take the train to the airport after getting your bags and clearing customs, checking in, it's like 4.30 in the afternoon, you've been traveling for, like, 20-something hours, and that's just, it's not ideal, you know? And so, mm-hmm. um... We did that and then raced the next day. Like we went, so we got to the hotel at like 4.30 p.m. Stockholm time. We ate dinner and we were asleep by 8 p.m. I think Stockholm time, which is not too far off our normal bedtime. And then we slept till, I guess, no, 7.30 p.m. We went to bed because we woke up at 6.30. We slept 11 hours straight and... Us, the baby, everybody slept 11 hours, which is like the longest night of sleep I've had in in ages. And then we raced the next day. Like, it was crazy. That's just not how you should do it. And I was extremely uncomfortable the whole race. My back was tight the whole race. But, you know, still still banged out a decent time. You know, I think if you do all the little things right, you can can get away with it sort of. But I would say I kind of – I would say that race was the – third best I felt of my four races this year. I'd say both of my domestic races felt better. Hmm. I've been doing this to our guests lately and I want to do the same to you, David. What are David Magida's hot top hot five tips to getting over a bad race and smashing your next one? What are the hot five tips David Magida has for rebounding after a disappointing race? That's how I want to finish this thing. What happens? What what do we got to do here, David? You did that. You went, you were disappointed in the Euro champs. You came to North America. You won. You're the North American champ. So let's talk. What was that? Two weeks apart? What were they bracking? Two weeks? Three weeks? Three weeks. Three weeks Three apart. Weeks? All right. Talk, talk to me about t- hot tips for getting over okay. it. So some of this might sound like counterintuitive, I think. Um, tip one is um, get mad, right? Like... Like you, like if you have a bad day, I think you need to take like every personal slight that anybody has to say and everything you feel about all the time that you and energy you put into it that got wasted and just like add it to the fire because, you know, like what better opportunity to really motivate yourself than a shitty race when you know you could have done better. Um, I think the second thing is the opposite of that, which is have a short memory, which is like recognize that just because you had a bad day doesn't mean you're not fit. doesn't mean that you weren't ready to have a good day. It's, it's understanding that just not every day is your day. Like, I don't care who you are. Like, you will have bad days. And if you can mentally, like, take that, put the bad race in a box and set it on the shelf and you're like... I remember that it happened and I'm mad about it, but I'm not going to let that consume me. Like I'm more mad that people that shouldn't, that like I didn't perform and people that should not have beaten me, beat me. I'm going to like use that as fire. But at the same time, like I, you got to accept the fact that like you, you life comes with failures. If it was only successes, you wouldn't want to get better. So the, the third thing is you need to go and and revisit your strategy, right? Like what what did I do? Really take like the the, the opportunity to like really analyze yourself. Like did I did I make stupid mistakes? 
and admit it to yourself and what can I do better? Let's reassess. Um, the fourth one I would say is keep talking shit. Keep talking shit. Like <laughs> remind everybody that you are still extremely confident in yourself. Uh, I think I think there's something to be said about like the mental side of racing and not just like your own internal mental side, but like um, outward confidence, projection of like your outward confidence does help create some level of aura where like you want to have maybe not like people aren't like afraid of you, but like they're they they're still worried about you. They're still thinking about you. Um, and then at the same time, like use your bad race as an opportunity to both be the guy that while, while like people know that you're a threat, it's an opportunity to fly under the radar. So there's number five is like still fly under the radar. So for me, it was being able to sit back and know there's no expectations for me at North American championships because everybody thinks I don't have the fitness and then be able to fly under the radar and, run the race that I wanted to run and nobody suspected that they were about to get gobbled up. I'll say your confidence is confounding to me as not as a person, but as an athlete, because I, when I do poorly, I am almost incapable of, of believing what that says about my fitness and my training that got me there. Like you have talked the talk and walked the walk Shortly after talking the talk and blowing up several times in your career. And when you see, when you see that in an athlete, it's confounding to me thinking I would have to go in and put a block of training together until I could talk again and believe it. And I probably wouldn't talk the second time. I would try to keep quiet and you can turn around and say, no, I know that wasn't me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have that. I have that. Oh, I'm worried that might be me right now and I need to go fix it. So you're that. What you say about the mental game is real because to the outside, as someone who at times in our life have been considered a competitor of yours, it's disconcerting because you don't get it. I don't understand that. And it makes you wonder, what does he know? And there is there is power to that. Well, it's two things, right? One is like, don't forget the amount of work that you put in to get to this point. Like, just because things didn't go well doesn't mean you didn't do all that stuff. Doesn't mean your fitness isn't good. Doesn't mean all the baseline testing that you did that showed that you're really fit. That's not all wrong just because one day didn't go your way. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, like, Russell Westbrook, God bless him, for I've never seen an athlete who could brick more shots and still be like, I'm the guy who needs to take that last shot at the end of a game. Like that dude has the most irrational confidence I have ever seen where he's like, Oh wait, you got LeBron James over here. No, 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 no. I'm shooting the ball. Like take what you will out of like that man's failures. But like at the same time, like look what happened in the playoffs. Like, yeah, his team was eliminated because they were outgunned, but like this dude went and just earned himself another huge NBA contract. Cause Everyone thought, said he was washed up. Everybody said he was done. But that guy walks onto the court with Kevin Durant and thinks he's the best player on the floor. And I think that there's something mm-hmm. to just – I don't care if you're lying to yourself. Like it doesn't really matter. Just like repeat the lie until you believe it. Like I believe when I walk into a race, I can beat every single person there. And if you're not going to tell yourself that, and if you're not going to believe, like, I'm ready to do this, then what are you doing there? 
That's a fantastic comparison. I love it. I don't want to be compared to Russ. Like, I, there are so many better players stylistically that I'd want to be, but ment- mentally, that guy is an absolute warrior. He's one of those people that if everyone else had an ounce of his confidence, they'd be their best selves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He also doesn't have self-awareness. So they're, they're like, it goes hand in hand with things. On the court. But yeah. if you had an ounce of their confidence, you'd get a lot closer to your ceiling. Mm-hmm. Does anger serve a purpose? Like, other than venting? Like, I've never... Bracken is one of the most evenly demeanored person people I know. And I would consider myself actually very similar. The only time I've ever seen Bracken in a bad mood is when a race don't go his way. He is You get mad, Bracken. Immediately afterwards, anyways. Mm-hmm. You get upset. Does that serve you guys? Like When I have a bad race, I get maybe mildly frustrated, but I more just feel disappointed and I want another opportunity at it, but I don't get angry. Um, but I know some people it serves very well. Like, is that... Does that really does that seem truly helpful? At least short term. I have that side. I have that really fiery, yeah. that really fiery side. Like, like I'm not pleasant to be around at certain times, especially if my team is losing. Um, but I'm like the yelling at the TV guy. Um, but at the same time, like after a after a race where I got my ass kicked, if it's if if it's not a race where like the person just ran incredibly and I just like I had a great day but it wasn't enough if it's one of those days where like I was just dog shit um I'm more sad and then I like kind of mope around like we'll go out for drinks afterwards and I'll be like running it over in my head and I'm like I can't believe that happened like I can't believe uh and then like literally like in Maastricht by the end of the night we'd have been out for drinks with some of the guys in the race and I literally by the end of the night I'd completely turned it around and I was already like just wait till North American champs. Like this was not me. You're going to see me at North American champs. And I was saying it to him. I told Tim Venish. I told, um, I told Peter Schiller. I told a bunch of these guys. I was just like, it's, you're going to see the real me. Um, and, and it's like, you could turn that around fast, but the anger kind of comes for me in my training. Like if I'm, if I'm like really suffering, like struggling to, to motivate myself during a workout, I will work myself up. I will, I will get myself angry thinking about the things that really pissed me off about the race or what someone said or blah, blah, blah. And I, it's like, it's training fuel. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably my greatest tool in training, but it's a huge flaw when you're trying to be a good person mm-hmm. and, and you're no longer single and doing just your life. Yes. It was it was always really helpful to me as an athlete, but it's destructive as a person. It's so destructive. That's that's like how how do you learn how to put it in a box and let it out of a box? I think I think it's not healthy for a lot of people. They say you shouldn't talk about that. It doesn't matter. It's effective. Cocaine's not healthy. It is super effective. <laughs> for what? <laughs> Anger is not healthy, but it's super effective. Like there are a lot of things in life you shouldn't promote, but it doesn't change the fact that it does exactly what it's intended to do for you from a chemical standpoint. I have a rage activator that like once in a blue moon, I can tap into it during a race, like late in a race. And I can get like, I'll scream obscenities into the air and then just go to another level. Like it's rare. It it happens. Um... And I'm kind of hoping I get it at world championships because it's not every race, but it is, it, it really is it's like going super Saiyan. Like it's, it's something special, but at the same time, like it's not a great thing in the rest of my life. I 
fully admit it. My wife will tell you it's not awesome. Mm. That's so interesting. The best racing or running or anything I do is when I'm completely numb. I'm completely detached from any emotion except the task at hand. I've never been able to tap into that in a race. Yeah, I have it for, for training, but then I also have a race day version. But that race day version only comes out in that final stretch. It's like I've given my stoic, calm effort, hit all my splits, and now we're toe-to-toe in whatever, however much is left. And now it's, you know, what, it's lunges and wall balls left. Like, it's time to get mad. It's time to get nasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a training-based rage that's... I don't want to say the word healthy, but that it's healthy to use. But like, the more it burns leading up, I think the calmer you have to be at the start line. Yeah, it's like it's like a bottle of NOS. Like you can't use it in the first no. half of the race, or your car blows apart. You need to save it for the final stretch. The tricky part is that the more you tap into it, the more it starts to tap into itself in your regular life. So you mm-hmm. have to be like. What is it like the 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 wolf you feed that whole concept right? And so I'm not going to go into the whole uh, metaphor, but yeah, the, I mean, I it's just something that like intense people have to be careful of that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you fellows want to keep chatting, but I've I I always go just over. It's like if I put my shoes on in a minute and get out the door, I'll still make it in time for my client. So that's where I'm at. Um, you guys good to wrap? Yeah, yeah, we can revisit this. I like talking to you, David. We get some good places. I have more things I want to talk about, too. But now it's like, shoot. We can do a part two, you know. Part three. It don't matter. Technically. Part three. All right. This is part two, right? Yeah. I guess I'm nipping this in the butt. Yeah. You guys cool with rapping? And then we'll just have to do another one someday? Yeah. Anytime, boys. I love your podcast. Always happy to be on. I like talking. I like listening. It makes three. <laughs> no, Bracken and I also just just hosted the three K series together the other day. So don't you, you even know, start with that. Uh, don't you even start with that. Aren't you not super stoked to race this, Kurt? To just <laughs> sign up. He's saying he got left off the booth. <laughs> I will say the one that I you guys need to stop it right now. Super super fun. Yeah, we need to stop <laughs> okay. this immediately. Uh, All right. All right. Get out of here. Thank you, David. (laughs) See ya. Bye. Thanks, guys.